is good to see you. Like Corey said, if you don't know me, my name is Andrew, one of the pastors here at GFC. And we have been in the series Storyteller for a little bit now. And if you haven't been with us, that's okay. We're so excited that you're with us today. Storyteller is a series where we are looking at the different parables, a bunch of the different parables that Jesus uh, shared in the book of Luke. And if you're not familiar with what a parable is, that's okay. A parable is basically an earthly story where Jesus, he looked around his culture uh, 2,000 years ago and he took all these different cultural elements and then he, he used them to tell uh, heavenly stories, basically stories that had heavenly meaning. And so uh, they're deep, powerful stories that had so much profound wisdom and truth to uh, 2,000 years ago, but also for us today. And today we're going to be looking at another one of those parables. Before we get there, I want to ask you a question. Have you ever been doing the, what you thought was the right thing? You know, you were doing something and you were going about it in all the ways that you thought was right. And you expected a certain outcome, but then along the way, you missed a pretty important detail and things kind of flipped on its head. Have you ever had an experience like that? Like maybe you had a project at work and you were doing all, everything you thought was right and then you got to the end and just things didn't line up. Or maybe there was a, a, a relationship you had or, or something, a hobby you had and you had all these plans and you were doing these things and you thought it was all going to work out this way and then it actually turned out this way. There was a time a number of years ago when my parents were living in upstate Pennsylvania and my grandma and my great aunt were visiting them. And they visited them and they had a great time and then it was the day that they were going to go home. And my great aunt and my grandma, they live in western Pennsylvania. So my parents are in northern Pennsylvania. My grandma and my great aunt live in western Pennsylvania. So they pack up the morning they're going to leave. They hop in the car and they start driving along and they get to the highway. They get on the highway and they're driving. They're talking. They're just having a great road trip. Pretty soon, though, they start seeing signs for places like New Jersey. (laughs) Now, is New Jersey west or east? It's east, all right? So pretty soon, they realized, oh, no, we've gone two hours in the wrong direction. So they had to get off make a turn, eat some humble pie, and go west then. So a journey that's supposed to take five to six hours turned out to be about nine hours. They did all the right things. You know, they got up in the morning, they said goodbye, they packed, they got on the highway. But what did they do? They went the wrong direction. In today's parable, we're going to see somebody who's doing supposedly all the right things. He's going about everything that you would expect that someone should do, but he totally, totally misses it. He goes in the wrong direction. So we're going to go to Luke chapter 18. This is the parable we're in today. Luke chapter 18, verses uh, 9 to 14. Uh, Feel free to open up your Bible, go to our follow along. Uh, You can go to our website, you can find that, or scan the QR code on those next step cards to find our follow along that has all the verses and all the notes for today. But we're going to read through Luke uh, 18, verses 9 to 14, and then we're going to go back, kind of walk through and pull out what this parable is all about. So here we go. Luke 18, verses 9 to 14. Then Jesus told this story to some who had great confidence in their own righteousness and scorned everyone else. Two men went to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee and the other was a despised tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed this prayer. I thank you, God, that I'm not like other people, cheaters, sinners, adulterers. I'm certainly not like that tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give you a tenth of my income. But the tax collector stood at a distance and dared not even lift his eyes to heaven as he prayed. Instead, he beat his chest in sorrow, saying, Oh God, be merciful to me, for I am a sinner. 
I tell you, this sinner, not the Pharisee, returned home justified before God. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. All right, so that's our parable for today. Like I said, we're going to go backward and walk through it and pull out some things from this parable that I think I know have been powerful for me this week, and I hope are powerful for us moving forward. So let's go back to verse 9. This parable is awesome because it has an introduction. Not all of Jesus' parables have that. So in verse 9, we get this intro uh, that helps give us more information about uh, what this parable is all about, who this parable is about. So if we can go back to verse 9, that would be, that'd be awesome. Because it starts out and says, Then Jesus told this story to some who had great confidence in their own righteousness and scorned everyone else. This is like a little, a little note that Luke puts in says, Hey, watch this. This is what this parable is about to be about. Let me ask you, who is this story for? It says it right there. Who is this story for? You know, it says it's for people who had self-confidence and they despise other people. They look down on other people. But this story is for us today as well. So when you hear those words, look down on other people, were confident in themselves, or, or we could say had self-righteousness, who pops into your mind? You know, you know what self-righteousness is? That idea that of someone kind of looking down on other people, they kind of they view themselves as better than others because they see all the good things they do, all their accomplishments. They kind of put their nose up at other people and say, hmm, I'm better than everybody else. You know, do you know anyone like that? You know, maybe someone pops into your mind, someone uh, at work, maybe there's a boss of yours that you're just like, oh, they're just so self-righteous. They're always looking down on other people. Maybe you live with that person. Maybe the person who comes into your mind is this person up on the stage. Maybe that person is someone in this room. If they are, don't look at them, all right? Because that'd be kind of awkward. Maybe that person is someone on TV, someone you hear talking. Who is this for? This parable about self-righteous people that look down upon other people. I want you to hold on to whoever came into your mind, all right? Because we're going to come back to that later on. But we know exactly who this parable is for. And then Jesus, he dives in and describes the story now in verse 10. In verse 10, Jesus, he dives right on in and he says, Two men went to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee and the other was a despised tax collector. Like any good story, Jesus sets it up. He gives us the setting and he gives us the characters. All right, He tells us it's going to be in the temple. If you're not familiar with what the temple was, the temple uh, was in Jerusalem. And the temple was a place people would go to offer sacrifices to God. They'd go, they'd, they'd pray, there'd be songs sung. It was a place of worship to God. And the temple uh, was divided into different sections. The central part of the temple was a place called the Holy of Holies. This is where, like, the Ark of the Covenant would have been kept. There was all these different things that would have been in the Holy of Holies. Uh, this was the place where God's presence was supposed to have been dwelling. All right. Then outside of the Holy of Holies, you would, have gotten, you would have gotten a place for just the priests. Only the priests could go there. And there then would have been a big curtain that would have separated where the priests could go to the Holy of Holies. And no one went in the Holy of Holies except for the high priest and just once a year to offer a sacrifice. All right. So you'd have the Holy of Holies. You'd have the place where the priests could go. Then you'd have a place where the men of Israel could go. Then you'd have a place where the women of Israel could go. And then outside of that could be all the Gentiles. Meaning, meaning non-Jewish people. So you'd have all these, this kind of separation effect all the way until you finally got to where God's presence was believed to have dwelt. That's the temple. 
we then have a Pharisee and a tax collector. Now, if you've been with us uh, before or you were raised in the church, you've probably heard stories from the Gospels where Pharisees have been mentioned or tax collectors have been mentioned. You may have even heard this parable before. But when you hear the word Pharisee, what feelings start coming up in in you? Are they like good feelings, like thumbs up feelings or like thumbs down feelings? When you hear the word Pharisee, what comes into your brain? Do you, do you picture someone like, oh yeah, that's a good guy? What if someone called you a Pharisee now? Like so you're, you're being just like a Pharisee. That would be a bad thing. That would be an insult. You know, as 21st century uh, Americans, and for, for many of us I know who've been around the church before, we hear the word Pharisee and we think, boo, bad. For Jesus' audience, though, we have to catch this. Jesus' audience, when they heard the word Pharisee, they wouldn't have just immediately gotten those negative feelings. Because a Pharisee was someone that they would have looked up to, someone they would have respected. See, a Pharisee was somebody who uh, was a Jew, but the Pharisees were kind of a sect or a group of Judaism that tried to set themselves apart from everybody else. They tried to take the Old Testament law and live it to the extreme. They tried to follow it uh, as, as faithfully as they possibly could. In fact, the word Pharisee means to be distinguished or to be, to be separated from. There was this idea that, hey, I'm a Pharisee. I have to be separate. I have to be kind of a notch above everyone else. I have to follow the Old Testament law or the Torah so faithfully that everyone's going to see it. And God's going to see it too. And so these were people that were really diving into the scriptures. They would have had them memorized. They would have been following them so faithfully. So Jesus' original audience 2,000 years ago hears temple, that's a good place. Pharisee, okay, we respect them. Then they hear tax collector. Again, if you've grown up in the church, maybe you've heard this parable before, we hear tax collector and we kind of think, oh yeah, someone we can relate with, probably the good guy in the story. And we know that because we've already read the parable. But for Jesus' original audience, they would have heard tax collector and they really would have despised tax collectors. Because a tax collector was somebody that, as the Roman government went around, as they were conquering the world at that time, they'd go into a country like Israel. After they'd conquer it, they'd set up a tax system. And they would take local people and say, hey, you're going to collect the tax for us. And so they'd go around collecting the tax for big bad Rome. So people would see a tax collector and say, you're a traitor. You're betraying your country. You're betraying your God. You're betraying your fellow Jews. We don't like you. But then tax collectors, they'd collect the minimum tax for Rome but they jack up the price of the taxes so that they could then pocket the rest. So people would see a tax collector and say, again, you're a traitor, you're a thief, you're a robber. We don't want anything to do with you. These are the characters Jesus puts into this story. Now, Jesus goes in and he shows two prayers, the prayer of the Pharisee and the prayer of the tax collector in verse 11, 12, and 13. Before we dive into them, we have to, as we're going through this, see what Jesus is doing. He's comparing these these two men. He's comparing uh, their prayers. And it's pretty, pretty profound how different they are. First, we start with the Pharisee. And there's a couple things. One, I want to look at his posture first, before we actually get into the content of his prayer. His posture and then the, the tax collector's posture are interesting. See, it says that uh, the tax, or the Pharisee, excuse me, uh, he, he stood off by himself. Okay? He's all by himself. Now, he's not in the back of the crowd. Like, he's not far away. He's likely out in front of everyone else. Because when we get to the Pharisee, we learned he stands at a distance. 
So we get this idea that the Pharisee is actually kind of, remember the temple, there's the Holy of Holies, there's the place for the priests, and then there's a place where the men go. He's likely as close to the Holy of Holies as he possibly can get. He's out front, all by himself. Everyone can see him. And he's likely standing there, possibly with his arms raised. Because we learn then the Pharisee, his arms are down and is beating his chest. The Pharisee is likely there standing like this. And that would have been a common posture for people to pray in. And he's possibly, and more than likely, praying out loud. Because again, that was a common practice back then. So he's likely standing out in front of everyone, as close to the Holy of Holies as he can. And he's praying like this. You can't miss him. Everybody sees this guy. And it's expected. He's a good guy. He's a Pharisee. Of course he's got to be up close where God's at. And as he's praying, he starts out and he says, I thank you, God. Is that a good way to start a prayer? Oh, yeah. Yeah, thanking God is a really good way to start a prayer. This sounds great. Catch, though, what he starts to do. He says, I thank you, God. His eyes are on God. And then he starts to lower his eyes and kind of, it's like he's looking around, kind of maybe looking back at all the people. And he says, you know, thank you, God, that I'm not like these people. You know, those cheaters way over there and those sinners and those adulterers. And I know, oh, yeah, that tax collector. Thank you that I'm not like him. Is it a good thing that the Pharisee isn't cheating on people? Yeah. Is it a good thing that the Pharisee isn't an adulterer? Yeah. These are some good things. The Pharisee is living a morally good life. He's not doing things that he shouldn't be doing. But do you notice how his prayer isn't, Lord, thank you so much. There's so many temptations and, and I so easily could have cheated my neighbor last week. I was so tempted to. Or, or Lord, I, I could have committed adultery. I had that opportunity last year, but, but I said no. So thank you for protecting me. Like That's not his prayer. That's different. He's just saying, thank you, God. I'm not like that person and that person and that person and that person. He's not really thanking God. But the things he's not doing, those are good things. It's good that he's not like that. But then he goes on, after kind of putting everyone down and putting himself up by saying, I'm not like those people. He then kind of ratchets it up even more by proclaiming the things he is doing. And he talks about two things. First, he talks about fasting. He says, look, God, I'm not like those people. Now look at me, God. I, I fast twice a week. Now fasting, according to the Old Testament law, fasting was something people could do. It was a good thing. Fasting is a, is a good spiritual discipline where you deny yourself in order to set aside time for prayer and worship of God. It's a good thing. But according to God's law, there was really only one time God's people back then were called to fast, and that was on the Day of Atonement. That one day a year where the high priest would enter into the Holy of Holies, God's people were called to fast. But here he is fasting not just once a year, not even just once a week. He's fasting twice a week. And it's likely uh, he fasted on Mondays and Thursdays. That was kind of a traditional practice of many Pharisees back then. Imagine that. And put yourself in that situation. He's giving up food two days out of a week. That's pretty impressive, right? I can't imagine doing that just one day a week, let alone two days a week. And here he is denying himself. And he's letting God know that. It's pretty impressive. You know, he's not like these cheaters 
who d- never deny themselves. They just see what they want and they manipulate and they, they connive ways to get what they want. He's not like those cheaters. He's fasting twice a week. He's a pretty good guy. He then goes on and talks about how he gives a tenth of my income. Now, other translations, when it says income, it actually talks about um, a tenth of everything he gets. And there's a difference there. Um, there's a likelihood that this guy isn't just actually tithing on just what he's getting paid or what he's earning. It's likely that he's doing what's called a double tithe. It's basically this idea. Let's say you get your paycheck and you tithe on the money you earn. Then you go to Walmart, you pick up some groceries, and when you get home, you say, okay, now I'm giving a tenth of my groceries to God. That's a double tithe where you, di- where you tithe on your money, but then you also tithe on the things you purchase too. There's a, a good chance when you kind of study the passage that that's actually more likely what he's doing. Just like with fasting, he's kind of, he's going above and beyond. He's doing the same thing with tithing. He's doing way more than God ever asks or expects of him. You know, he's not like those adulterers or those sinners who they, they're just so selfish. They just think about themselves. Here he is not just giving back to God once. He's giving back to God twice. And he lets God know that. This guy's actions are pretty commendable, aren't they? They're pretty good. The things he's doing, it's not wrong to double tithe. It's not wrong to fast twice a week. But notice how he goes out of his way to let God know and let us know. You know, this guy, he's morally doing all the right things. But we know how this parable goes. We've already read it. He misses something, something along the way. Something doesn't quite add up. You know, he presents this prayer as a thank you to God. But is he really thanking God here? Is this really a prayer of thanks? You know, we could go back to the Old Testament and we could read Psalms of Thanksgiving. And they sound very different than this. You know, here, this guy, he's not really thanking God. In fact, he's actually kind of stopped talking to God. He's now kind of just talking to himself. He's trying to justify himself about how good and right and righteous and moral he is. He's looking around at other people and saying, I'm definitely better than that guy and her and him and that person. Oh yeah, and that tax collector. Like, God, look at how awesome I am. I don't even have to look at them. I can just look at myself. I, I, I fast and I tithe. I'm pretty good. I'm awesome. That's what he's doing. You know, it's, he's basically declaring to God, you know, like, thank you, God, for me. It's a good thing you made me because I'm pretty special. You know, he's checking himself out in the mirror and he's really impressed with what he sees. He's comparing himself to others and he's doing what I like to call the totem pole game. The totem pole game. And I, we have a picture of what a totem pole is if you're not familiar with it. A totem pole, uh, it's connected with like different Native American uh, cultures. And as you see on the totem poles, there are these really cool carvings. But you'll see different images or pictures or animals. And the totem pole game is basically this. You want to be at the top of the pole. Because the pole is the place of the most glory. It's the place where people can see you first. You're obviously better than all the images below you because they're holding you up. The totem pole game is a game of comparison where you try to justify yourself, make yourself feel better by looking at other people and saying, you know what? I'm farther up the pole than you are. That's what the Pharisee is doing. He's looking at other people and he's saying, you know what? 
you're clearly on the bottom holding everyone else up because you're a tax collector. And, oh, yeah, you cheater and adulterer. And, oh, yeah, you swindler. Like, yeah, I'm higher up the pole than you. And, God, you know what? I fast and I tithe, so I'm at the top. I'm pretty much like, it's God and then me. Like, that's, that's what he's doing with this idea, this idea of comparison, trying to self-justify, trying to make himself be the best compared to everyone else. He's playing the totem pole game. Imagine this guy's prayer if he was a modern, if he was sitting in this room right now. Just to imagine, it might go like this, you know, Lord, thank you. I look around and I see that I'm not like those crazy people, those, those people who give in to, you know, all those drugs and drinking and sex. And Lord, you know, I'm not like those people I see on TV, man. They're just going off the rails. They're bringing this country down. I am morally so superior to those people with the, those crazy, wacky ideas about sexuality. And Lord, thank you that I don't live off the system. And Lord, thank you. I, you know, I come to church every Sunday and also every Sunday evening to, to clean the church when Pastor Corey doesn't know. And I, Lord, I, I do everything that I can to, to support my community. And, and I, I point them back to our church and to you. And Lord, thank you for the way that you've allowed me to serve. I've changed people's lives. I'm pretty awesome because of you. Lord, thank you that my kids, they're not into all those crazy things at school. You know, Lord, thank you that we can listen to WJTL every night, fall asleep to, you know, Chris Tomlin and, and all that music. Like, just ima- that's kind of the idea. It sounds crazy and absurd. But that's what this guy's doing in the temple. Hands raised in front of everybody playing the totem pole game. And he's disguising it as prayer when really it's just him saying, look at how awesome I am. Where does his confidence lie? Is it in God? No, it's in himself. It's in himself. That's the Pharisee. We then go to the tax collector. The tax collector, his posture is so different um, than the Pharisee. The Pharisee's standing there like this by the Holy of Holies. The tax collector says he stands at a distance. His eyes are downcast. He won't even look up to heaven, and he's, he's beating his chest. If you saw someone doing that, like out in the lobby later on, you just see someone downcast, like beating themselves, you'd think that this person is distraught, this person is grieving, this person is mourning. Like you would see by their posture that they're upset. The tax collector is clearly upset. It's the complete opposite of the Pharisee. And his, the content of his prayer, it's, it's short. It's just one line. He says, God have mercy on me, a sinner. You know, he acknowledged God. The Pharisee did. He said, thank you, God. But the tax collector, he f- acknowledges God and he focuses on God. He says, God have mercy on me, a sinner. You know, some translations actually render it the sinner. You know, there's a, there's a good reason to think that if you look at the Greek, that it's actually, he's not just saying like, Lord, I'm just a sinner amongst all these other terrible, sinful people. No, he's saying like, God, I'm the sinner. Like I've messed up. I've screwed up. I've done terrible things. Have mercy on me. You see the difference in their prayers. Where is his confidence lying? Is it in himself? 
No, it's in God. We see a man who is just distraught with what he's done. He knows who he is. He knows he's messed up. He knows he's cheated and swindled his countrymen. He knows he's, he's a tax collector. And the only place he can go is he's, he's not playing the totem pole game. He's not looking around and saying, you know what? If I could just be better than those other tax collectors, and at least I didn't commit adultery like those people, you know, I'm... I'm at least not half bad. I'm not a Pharisee God, but I'm at least halfway up the pole. No, he just is like, I'm not going there. I'm not looking at them. I'm looking at me, just me and God. And I recognize I'm a sinner. I'm the sinner. When I compare just myself to God, I need him to be merciful. Because if he's not, I have no hope. His confidence is not in himself. It's all in God. Verse 14 then, after the prayers, we get Jesus' thoughts about these prayers. He says, I tell you, this sinner, not the Pharisee, returned home justified before God. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Remember Jesus' original audience 2,000 years ago. Like We know that the tax collector is kind of the, the good guy in this, and the Pharisee is the bad guy. But 2,000 years ago, Jesus tells this parable and he ends by saying it's the Pharisee who returns home not justified and the tax collector who returns home and is justified before God. That would have flipped everything that they knew on its head. It would have been scandalous. It would have been like, what what do you mean a Pharisee can't go home justified before God? He's a Pharisee for goodness sake. Now what does the word justified mean. It's important that we catch this idea. Being justified or justification is a really important idea for us as believers to grasp. Being justified is basically being declared right. That's being declared that you are in right standing with God. And one definition is this. Justification is the biblical teaching about how believers are declared to be right before God. Catch it. It's not that they earned the right to be right in front of God. It's that God declares them to be right before him, even though they are not actually righteous in themselves. It's this, it's this idea of you're in, a, you're in a court scenario and you're the guilty party. You've done something. You've committed murder. You've, you've, had th- you've stolen something. It doesn't matter. You're the guilty party. You are not righteous, meaning you're not in right standing with the people around you. You're not in right standing with society. You're not morally righteous. You, you deserve to be punished. And then someone comes into the courtroom who's innocent, who's free. And they say, you know what? I will take his penalty, his life in prison or his death row sentence. I will take it on myself. And then the judge looks at you and says, okay, the penalty's being paid. I declare you right with society. You are now justified. You can go home. That's crazy, right? That's crazy. That's not how our court systems operate. That's like, it's not how it works. And yet, this is the gospel. This is the reality that we as people were sinners And we couldn't save ourselves. We were guilty and deserved to be punished because we turned our back on God. And yet Jesus came and said, no, hold everything. I'm going to die on the cross so these people can be justified before you. Think about that. And it's the 
the tax collector, not the Pharisee who's declared justified. You know, as sinful humans, we need to be brought back into right standing with God. That's what we need. That's our greatest need. And this is why the, the tax collector is justified. This is why. Because of this. Because thinking you are righteous enough to justify yourself before God is delusional. The Pharisee thinks that he can justify, make himself right before God's eyes, all by himself, all by his lonesome, by looking at other people and comparing himself to others and boosting himself up and saying, God, look at what I've done. I've done this and this and this and this and this. Accept me, God. Our God is too big. Our God is too holy, meaning he's without sin. He's perfect. He doesn't mess around with the totem pole game. He doesn't look at our external things we do and say, good job, I'll take you. He looks at our hearts. And you look at the Pharisee's heart compared to the tax collector's heart. And the Pharisee is self-delusioned. He's not really trusting in God. He's trusting in himself. His confidence is in him and not in God. But God is not impressed with our own deeds. He's not. And we see this in the rest of scripture. In Romans 3, we see this very clearly. Romans 3, 9 to 10, and then 3, 23. In Romans 3, the Apostle Paul, he's speaking, and he's been going through from chapter 1 to chapter 3, going through this argument where he's talking about how everyone is sinful, basically. He says, well then, should we conclude that we Jews are better than others? No, not at all. For we have already shown that all people, whether Jews or Gentiles, are under the power of sin. As the scripture says, and here he's quoting from the Old Testament, no one is righteous, not even one. Meaning no one's in right standing with God. We've all morally failed. We've all messed up. We're all screwed up. And he says then in verse 23, everyone sinned. We've all fallen short of God's glory. So this idea within the Pharisee's mind that he could somehow win God's favor on his own terms, he's rejecting reality because this is reality. That we can't do it on our own. But that's not the only part of reality the amazing part of our, the reality we live in is that God is merciful just like the tax collector realized. As he calls out to God, he recognizes, I'm a sinner, but you're merciful. And when he acknowledges his need, when he accepts God for who he is and asks him to be merciful, that's when God says, I declare you right before me. Not because of how impressive you are, not because your amazing resume but because you accept my help, you acknowledge you need me. And I believe this is, this is true, that in God's economy, a broken, repentant heart is greater than actions of moral goodness. In God's economy, when he looks around at people, he's looking for those broken, repentant hearts, not just actions of moral goodness. Now, I'm not saying, don't hear me say, God doesn't care about our deeds. He doesn't care about our actions. You go home and do whatever you want. No, God does care about what we do. But those actions need to first flow out of a broken, repentant heart. Because what happens if they don't is we become like the Pharisee. We play the totem pole game. We try to put ourselves up and put other people down because we say, look at how good our deeds are. Or we mess up so badly and then we sit at the bottom of the pole and say, I can never get there. God's never going to accept me. 
When that's not what God cares about, he's looking at our heart and saying, just break over your sin, repent of it. I'm here. I died for you. And we see this reality all throughout scripture. The apostle Paul talks about this in 1 Timothy chapter 1. He says this, this is a trustworthy saying and everyone should accept it. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And he says, I am the worst of them all. This is the apostle Paul. He wrote a bunch of the New Testament. He went around the Mediterranean sharing the gospel with people. If the apostle Paul sees himself as sinner number one, where does that leave Andrew? Where does that leave all of us? If the apostle Paul saw himself this way, I think we need to see ourselves this way too, that we are the sinner. And actually in Luke 16, Jesus has another encounter with some Pharisees and this is what he says. It says the Pharisees, this is actually comes after the passage Pastor Corey preached on last week. The Pharisees who dearly loved their money heard all this and scoffed at him. Then he said to them, you like to appear righteous or you like to appear morally good. You like to appear in right standing before everyone in public. But God knows your hearts. What this world honors is detestable in the sight of God. The Pharisees, they were living for the external experience, living for everyone to see them and say, they're righteous. And they thought God would do the same. And Jesus is like, God doesn't care about that as much as you might think. God's looking at your heart and he recognizes you're just self-confident. You're not trusting in him. And even David in Psalm 51, this is a psalm he writes after his sins. If you're not familiar with his story, he's, he's the king over Israel. And then he has... Uh, a man killed so that he can take that man's wife. It's, it's a terrible scene. But David then, he repents of his sins. He says, you do not desire a sacrifice. He's talking to God. You do not desire a sacrifice or I'd offer one. You do not want a burnt offering. The sacrifice you desire is a broken spirit. You'll not reject a broken and repentant heart, oh God. Think about what King David's saying. 3,000 years ago, living in the culture he did, the system he lived in. People were offering sacrifices all the time. Why? Because God told them to. And yet David recognizes, yeah, God told us to do that, but there's actually something deeper, something that's meant to go before the sacrifice, something that's meant to precede my actions, and it's at the heart level. It's not me just going through the motions. Yeah, I sin, God. Okay, here's, here's a, a goat, sacrifice it. Yay, I'm good. Like, he's not doing that. He's saying, God, I have to start here. And I, I've sinned and I have to repent. I have to break over my sin. And that's where God wants us to get to. So I asked this question at the beginning. Who is this for? Who's it for? Who came into your mind when you heard, oh yeah, we're talking about self-righteous people, people who despise other people. This parable, we first have to start with this. We have to insert our own name. This parable is for Andrew because Andrew is the sinner. This parable is for you because you're the sinner. Before we look at other people and say, look at how self-righteous and messed up and screwed up they are. Look at how good I am compared to them. We first have to say, I can be like that Pharisee. I can try to play the totem pole game. I can try to justify myself in front of God. And that's not what he's looking for. He's looking for my broken, repentant heart. As I was reading this week, processing this parable, I was reading one commentary where the guy, he was talking about how 
back in the, the 70s, he and his church were, were going out into their community, asking people questions, trying to share the gospel, trying to evangelize. And one of the questions they would ask is this, you know, why should, if they, this was the question, suppose you were to die tonight and stand before God and God asked you, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? It's an interesting question to ask, interesting to think about. So they'd go around and they'd ask people questions like this. And with this question specifically, they tabulated all their responses because they'd record what people said. And they had hundreds and hundreds of responses. 90%, nine out of 10 people said, well, God should let me into heaven based on something that they did or didn't do. Based on, well, I gave to the church, I tithed. Well, I was a good person. I, I served my community. Well, I, I wasn't a drunk. I wasn't an adulterer. I was, I was a pretty good person. So that's why God should let me in. Think of that. 90%, nine out of 10 people. That means a lot of us are buying into this delusion that we can justify ourselves before God. And we can't. So we have to start when we think about who this is for. We have to just start with ourselves. And as we begin to wrap up, just have some questions I want us to process through. And the first is this. Have you ever intentionally declared your need to God or for God to God? Have you ever done that? Meaning, have you ever accepted the gospel? Have you ever come to a point in your life where you've humbled yourself, where you've sat down in the midst of all your muck and sin and just said, I see it, God. I'm done playing this game. I'm done trying to justify myself. God, I need you. Be merciful to me because I can't save myself. Have you ever done that? Have you ever accepted his free gift of salvation? That's why Jesus died on the cross because you couldn't justify yourself. But Jesus, God himself became man, lived the perfect life we couldn't live. He died the death we deserved and he rose again, conquering the power of our sin and death. And he says, it's here. Take it. If you've never done that, you can do that today and you can go home justified, just like the tax collector did. So I want to encourage you to think about that. And if you decide to do that or you want to, to talk to someone more about that, I'd encourage you to come talk to me, Pastor Corey, find someone else in this room, someone who was up with the band. We'd love to talk to you or go home, take one of the cards, fill it out and just say, hey, I'd, I'd love to Talk to someone more about this Jesus thing, this gospel thing. Because that's the reality we live in, and that's what you need. So have you ever intentionally declared your need for God to God? I have two more questions as we wrap up. And these are kind of, if you have accepted the gospel and you are a Jesus follower, these are kind of for us to process through. And the first one is this. Do you live seeking worth and value based on self-confidence or God-confidence? You know, the Pharisee was all about his own self-confidence. His worth and value came from looking down on other people and looking at how awesome he was. Where does your worth and value lie? Is it in Jesus? Is it in our God and what he declares about you? Or are you still playing that game, trying to justify yourself in your own eyes? You know, this is a temptation I face all the time because I like to, for lack of a better term, look in the mirror, check myself out and say, oh, I'm pretty good. Because I, I like to feel that I'm, I'm good in myself. And I, I fall into this self-confidence thing all the time. I remember when I was at Lancaster Bible College, uh, 
I was in a psychology class, and I was an older uh, student in the class, and we were doing a group project. Now, I don't know if you've ever done a group project before, but usually in a group project, there's one person that does all the work, and everyone else just kind of mooches off of them. I'm sure you've been there. Either you've been the mooch, or you've been the one doing all the work. This wasn't like that. This was a scenario where I was pulling my way, and my, my classmates were pulling their way. But as the upperclassman, I was clearly the best one in the group, okay? So we get to the time where we're supposed to present our project. I don't remember what was on. So we each, had, each group had like a mental illness. And I'm presenting for the class. I'm presenting. It's a group project, but I'm presenting. We're going through, and my prof, Dr. Shikara was his name, uh, he started asking our group questions. And I kept answering them. And I kept answering because you know, if we're going to get a good grade, I'm going to be the one to get us a good grade, all right? I got to carry the team. So I'm answering the questions and answering them and answering, and I'm kind of sweating because he was a hard prof, but it was a good prof, but he's asking all these hard questions. And pretty soon after a while, Dr. Shakar is like, Andrew, you need to let some of your teammates answer these questions. And I was like, oh, snap. It's kind of, I was pretty embarrassed. I was called out in front of the whole auditorium of people. And I didn't like it. I didn't like it at all. Kind of just kind of stood there then the rest of the time and just hoped we'd get an A. But afterwards, I, I thought back and realized, you know what? I just looked down on my entire group of people, my, my entire, my classmates who were working with me. And there was no reason for me to do that. But I was so self-confident that they obviously needed me to get a good grade. They couldn't do it on themselves. They, they needed me as an upperclassman. You know, I was so self-confident in myself. That's where my worth and my value was coming from in that moment. And it wasn't just in, you know what? It's a team project, a group project. Let's do this together. I wasn't valuing them. I was valuing me for how awesome I thought I was. I don't know if you ever struggle with that, but I do. The last question is this. Where in your life are you tempted to play the totem pole game? Where in your life are you just tempted to look at people and say, I'm clearly better than you. God, look at how awesome I am compared to them. I don't know if there's someone at work, someone at home, just someone in your life where you're tempted to play this. Let's not play it, church family. It's not worth it. It's not what God's looking for. You know, I'm going to invite the band to come up as we, as we wrap up here. And I just want to say, living a life of self-righteousness is exhausting. It's exhausting. You know, as you're trying to justify yourself before everybody else, it's tiring because you're playing this game just constantly on the alert, trying to find people who you are clearly better than. And then what happens when you play this game, when you mess up and when you fail and when you, when you sin, you just get beat up because that's where your worth and value is lying. It's in this process of, I got to look around and make sure I'm better than others. You don't have to play this game. You don't have to constantly be on the lookout for, you know what? Am I good enough in front of God's eyes? Am I good enough in front of God's eyes? Am I better than other people? Am I? You don't have to. Because you can go home justified when you just recognize, you know what, I'm a sinner. And you sit down and you just see it. And then you look up and you say, God, you're merciful. Wow, you died for me. You, you clearly love me, God. I don't have to manufacture my own worth and value because you've given it to me. So church family this week, let's go home. And let's not play the totem pole game. Let's go home. Let's remember that our worth and value comes from our God who is merciful, who is loving, who is gracious. That's why Jesus came. And if you're here today 
and you've never declared your need for God to God, I want to invite you to do that. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for this story. A story with so much meaning for us, even now, 2,000 years removed from when you shared it first. Lord Jesus, please help us to be honest about the reality we live in. We, we live in a sinful, broken world because we are sinful, broken people. But you are the good, holy God who mercifully says, hey, I want to take this burden from you. Just accept it. So God, might we go forth this week changed people, desiring to not just live for ourselves, not desiring the place of glory on the top of the totem pole, but recognizing we get to live for you and your glory. Thank you, God, so much for loving us, for coming 2,000 years ago and dying for us. In your name I pray, amen.